Next up on sports across the board. Many times baseball games are there. It's, there's no action. You know, you have the, sh the shift. I don't think they should do away with the shift. What I think they should do is teach guys how to go to right field, go the opposite way. Use the opponent's weakness to your strength. That was Hall of Fame baseball scout Al Goldis, and I'm Gary McKillops. Welcome to Sports Across the Board. After another successful season, storm clouds continue to gather over the sport of baseball. Today, we talk with a man who spent his entire career in the game and who has opinions on all of today's hot topics. Al Goldis, Hall of Fame scout, player development director. He played with the Cincinnati Reds organization, became a scout for the Orioles in 1978, and later worked with the Angels, Brewers, Cubs, Reds, and the New York Mets. His most notable work was with the Chicago White Sox, where he served as director of scouting and player development from 1986 to 1990. His 1990 amateur draft included Alex Fernandez, Bob Wickman, Jason Beret and Ray Durham. He also was in charge of drafting Jack McDowell, Robin Ventura, and Hall of Famer Frank Thomas, among others. He's also a student of athletic performance and motivation. Al, welcome to Sports Across the Board. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversations and sharing of information. Let's start where you started. How did you uh, get into the scouting business? Well, after I finished playing baseball, I went back and uh, got my degrees. I had gone to Temple University uh, on a baseball basketball scholarship, and I played it a, a year in 1961. And back then, you could sign any time because that was prior to the draft. The draft began in 1965, so you could sign any time. So what I did is uh, I signed with the Reds and uh, ended up playing with them uh, in the minor leagues and I was on the big league roster. And then I got injured with my shoulder. I had one of the original uh, rotator cuff operations, throwing a football during the off season. And I ripped my shoulder and kind of ended my career. Went back to school, finished up my undergraduate degree. And uh, and then after a while, I got went, moved to New York with a job with J.P. Stevens Company. Uh, and I start coaching again uh, at St. John's University as the hitting coach. And then I had the opportunity to get back into scouting when I, this is ironic, we happened to go watch a kid play. And I'm sure you remember him, Dave Valley, who mm -hmm. was a uh, catcher. And he was playing at Holy Cross High School, which is right where I was near St. John's. And I go to the game and I have to see a fella that I hadn't seen maybe in 10 years. And it was Joe McIlvain. And Joe McIlvain was scouting for the Angels, who later become the general manager of the Mets and the San Diego Padres. But when I left Joe in Philadelphia, because that's where I grew up, uh, Joe played for me as an amateur. And he was becoming a priest. And I used to pick him up every Sunday at the seminary, and he would pitch for me. And when I saw him 10 years later at the baseball game with Dave Valley, I, I, he didn't have a collar on. So I said, what happened to your collar? He goes, I, I left the seminary after three years or two and a half years. And uh, I'm in baseball. I work for the Angels. And we talked for about three hours. And he asked me, he says, how come you're not back in baseball? I said, I've been trying to get back in and I've been writing letters, and et cetera. And he says, I'm leaving the Angels next Thursday. 
to go to work with Harry Dalton, who uh, went to Milwaukee. And he said, the job is going to be available with the Angels. Are you interested in the job? I said, absolutely. And he said, I'll have Rick Cuoco, who was the scouting director, call you Tuesday night. So, of course, I waited and so forth. And I spoke to Rick. And uh, it was, uh, you know, right away, he says, we want to hire you. Joe says we should hire you. I would like to hire you. So we had this long conversation. The irony of the whole uh, conversation, Gary, is, it was wonderful. I was going to be the East Coast supervisor, east of the Mississippi from Maine to Florida. And what happened was we got off the conversation and my wife asked me, how much money are they paying you? I said, I forgot to ask him uh, how much money I was going to make. <laughs> so I had to call him back. I said, what are you paying me? <laughs> so anyway, I started out at $10,000 a year. So that was the price of back in so that's how i got back into the game and all that because of a priest huh that's, that's all of that because of a priest and <laughs> joe we've become great friends ever we've always been good friends and uh you know so uh fortunately it's many times as you well know it's not what you know it's who you know exactly well speaking of people you've known and people you've been involved with uh certainly you've had some great successes uh, scouting and signing some players. Let's talk about a couple of those. Uh, the first has to be the big hurt, Frank Thomas, uh, who is now a commentator for Fox uh, Sports, I believe, doing, in fact, yeah. I think he did the World Series. But anyway, so what did you see in him? What do you see in those guys? How do you know they're going to be the next Frank Thomas or whoever? Well, you know, it's ironic because Frank played, of course, for Auburn, and Bo Jackson was on that team. And the day I happened to go watch him play, one of my outstanding scouts had seen him in high school as a 10th grader. And he always called him, he called him, I forgot, you know, the big guy or something. I forgot what he called him. But anyway, uh, so finally, when he was at Auburn, uh, I went to see him play at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. And obviously, you know, when you saw his size and his athleticism, because, you know, he played football for Auburn. He was a tight end. And mm -hmm. uh, so when I watched him, the first game, I'll never forget, game he played, the pitcher, I don't remember his name for uh, Kentucky, uh, number 18, I don't remember his number, number 18, and he threw him a, a slider or a breaking pitch down on the outside part of the plate. And Frank drove the ball to right center field off the wall. I wasn't sure if the ball was going to go through the wall rather than to the wall. That pitch, a big, good big league hitters hit that pitch. Uh, but he was able to make adjustments. And the one thing that he had uh, was he had a tremendous awareness of the strike zone. He didn't swing at bad pitches. And he knew what he want, wanted. And I said, this is my guy. I always had one question that I asked all the guys. I asked Frank. How do you see yourself down the road as a player? You see yourself playing in the big leagues. Well, Gary, he looked at me as if I just landed from Mars. Am I going to play in the big leagues? <laughs> I'm going to be a star in the big leagues. They all had this inner confidence, Gary, and it wasn't pseudo. It was a real belief that they had the ability. And I think besides the physical ability, 
the belief and confidence within themselves uh, carries them through the downtime and the, you know, and, and the diversities, but they never lose, they never lost confidence. They knew what they wanted. They knew who they were. And I had seen that as a common thread through all the good players that I had signed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I looked up some stats on uh, Frank Thomas. He was a five-time All-Star, the only player in Major League history to have seven consecutive seasons with at least a 300 batting average, 100 runs batted in, 100 runs scored, 100 walks, and 20 home runs. And he won the batting title in 97. And, of course, he won the series with the White Sox in 2005. So you really nailed it with him, Al. No question. Well, I, I think, you know, I think it was, you know, I have to tell you a story. I, I'm not going to mention the name, obviously, but during our draft meeting, you know, when they had our cross checkers going around what players and I had four cross checkers and they would go check each other. And we we formulate our board and we formulate our preferential list from the best to the worst uh, player that we, you know, on our board. And one of my cross checkers and I say, said to him, I said, what do you see? What's your opinion of Frank? I always wanted to listen to my my scouts and my people. And the guy says, well, I have him in the fifth round. I thought he meant fifth pick. He says, fifth round. I said, forget about it. If he's here, when we draft, he's ours. Uh, so everyone had a different opinion because they saw a big guy, but he was tremendously athletic. And that was the key. Uh, but more importantly, he was very bright, very smart. Uh, he understood hitting. He could remember what pitches were thrown to him. Uh, and he had a great brain as well as a physical stature. So that to me, that was, and he was a good guy. He was a good guy, always nice. When he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, of course, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, and my wife and I wanted us to be there and so forth. And mm -hmm. Frank saw me. And uh, in the in the hall and he comes running over to me and, you know, I'm five. I was five foot ten. He's six, four, six, five. He lifted me up <laughs> and it was like I felt like I was a, like surrounded by like engulfed by a, uh, an octopus. I had I was like, you know, and I, I, he literally says, I can't thank you what you did for me. And he was perspiring and he says, oh, wow, I'm so sorry that I I you know, that I'm perspiring. I'm so, you know, so excited. And, you know, it's warm here. I said, Frank, let me tell you something. You can perspire on me all you want. You made me look good for 19 years. <laughs> and then he introduced me, of course, to his wife and to his, to his mother. Um, just a good guy, though. A good guy, a good person. And I'm very not only proud, but just great to have him as a friend as well. I, I picture Yogi jumping up on Don Larson after the perfect game. That's what I'm seeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great analogy. I never thought about that. That's true. That's true. There you go. Uh, anyway, so you say Kerry Wood, too, and great pitcher. I think he had some injuries along the way, but as a 20-year-old rookie, he recorded 20 strikeouts in a one-hit shutout against the Astros. Again, you spotted something in him that was uh, obviously extraordinary. Yeah, well, Kerry uh, uh, Wood was Kerry uh, Wood was a, a, a kid. I mean, he, he had a curveball in high school that was. I mean, it was a big league curveball in high school, and he threw hard. And he had a great arm. Um, it, it was obvious. I, I think my wife could have scouted him to be a prospect, uh, but he had that makeup too. He had that killer instinct. Uh, but the guys, I, I think that were most fascinating for me, 
that I was very, you know, to sign was Dante Bichette. Uh, I signed him for $2,500 and no one ever saw him. I went to see another shortstop at, at Palm Beach Junior College and he was playing right field. And my scout, um, Preston Douglas had him, he had the shortstop. And I said, what about that right fielder? I said, the guy's 6'2", six, 6'3", six, could run like heck, could throw. And he goes, I like him too. So we ended up, uh, we drafted 16th, I think, Dante. And, uh, of course, he had a heck of a career. And, of course, I think the first guy I ever signed, I was, it's a, it, it's a story of I signing Devon White. Devon White was the first kid I ever signed. Hmm. And when he lived in New York, he lived actually on top of the polo grounds in, in, in upper New York. And his family was from Jamaica. And he played 11 games his senior year in high school. And he was playing third base. And you could see his athleticism was incredible. And he was a switch hitter. And he's playing on the Franklin Delaware Roosevelt uh, uh, FDR Drive in New York. And the fields are not very good in New York. Have you ever been there and seen those amateur fields? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he ran the ball, hitting left hand. He ran the first in uh, 3.9 uphill mm. and like the average major leaguer runs it in four two and here's a I, i'm looking at this guy he was so crude and but he had his athleticism he had looseness he had just you know he just hadn't played this you know he was a new york player that hadn't played compared to a say a texas or florida or california guy that had a lot of experience so we took him in the sixth round, the same year that uh, Schofield was taken number one. But we didn't have with the, this is with the Angels. We didn't have a second, third, fourth, or fifth pick. So Larry Himes, our scouting director, said, do you have anybody in the sixth round? I said, I got this kid, uh, Devon White. I said, he's a great, great uh, athlete. really a heck of an athlete. He could stand on a basket and dunk backwards. So we, we took him. The story that's ironic with this one, with Devon, was that Larry went to see him play and he called me up and he said, what did you see in this kid? He said, were you drunk when you saw this guy? So I said, well, what can he do? I said, can he run? He said, well, he's the fastest guy in the organization. I said, can he throw? He said, you got a great arm. I said, the kid's only played 11 games. I said, Larry, you're from California. You're used to finished products. This is raw material. Well, he goes to Instructional League, and we're sitting there next to Larry, and Gene Mock, the manager of the Angels at the time, was sitting with us. And all of a sudden, he comes walking to the plate in an in a, uh, Instructional League game in Phoenix, in Mesa, Arizona. And Gene Mock looked at him and said to Larry, he says, you see that kid right there? That's what Frank Robinson looked like at 17 years of age, skinny, 150 pounds. And Larry turned to me and said, Al, you could, could, you could be drunk a little bit more when you're scouting. I said, okay, Larry. And of course, Devon had a, he was had a nice, a great career, you know, especially as a defensive center fielder. Now we know the secret to your success. Just, just keep drinking. <laughs> just keep drinking. That's it. It depends on what you drink. Yeah, that's true. You know, you've also worked with some uh, football players. By the way, our guest is Al Goldis. He's a super scout, player development director, and uh, a Hall of Famer, actually. 
And we're glad to have him with us. Uh, Al, as I said, you work with some football players. I was reading about uh, Brady, and I guess everybody knows about his work ethic. But the same thing, I guess, applies in that sport as well, right? It applies. To, that's the common threads. He has a great brain. He has an ability to his visual skills, picking out receivers. Uh, he's programmed in his brain to be able to understand and see and read defenses quickly. See, their, their brains work very fast and they pick up things. They're very, very visually aware of the field. But he, not only that, he was prepared. And one of the things that help you prepare is how bright are you? I have had one, I had one player, I'm not mentioning his name. Uh, the guy was, he had every tool in the book, a baseball player. And he hit balls. He was like Mickey Mantle, this guy, where the other team in the big leagues would come out and just watch him take batting practice. He hit balls out of stadiums, except the problem was he could throw, he could run, he had power. So you say, how come this guy didn't become a star? He couldn't remember how the pitchers got him out. So his intellect of the game, and it doesn't mean that he wasn't bright off the field. He just couldn't recall pitches of how so-and-so got him out the last time. Just because you're, you know, you, if you have some athleticism, you have to have that baseball players are smart because they have to remember how the opponents are attacking them. For those of us who love baseball, you know, we hate to see some of the things that are happening. Um, some of them may be good. Some of them may not be so good. But let's talk about a couple of these now uh, and go across the board on Let's start with analytics. What do you think of that? Analytics is good for information, but this is where the problem occurs for me anyway, I'm giving you my own opinion, is that you have to have a human being, you have to have a good person that interprets the information. How do you use this information? How do you use this information at the plate? How do you use it as a manager? How do you use it as a pitcher? You can have all the information in the world, but if you don't know how to use it, what good is it? The Philadelphia Eagles are all, are very highly analytics. They've won, a, they've won what, two games, three games? I don't know what they won. But the thing is, it's how you use the information. Another issue is uh, the pace of games. I mean, we saw in the World Series games over four hours. Um, I don't know if baseball can stand that much longer, although, you know, as soon as you start talking about all these issues, you look at the attendance at these games, the ratings, at least on a regional level, people don't seem to be backing away from the game, even though some of them do go four hours. Yeah, yeah. I think in the long run, uh, it's going to hurt the game. And I'll tell you why. Because somewhere along the line, people are not going to watch. Uh, they're just getting bored, you know, but it's a big problem, right? You know, games are too long. You want action, you want people. But here's another point. The longer the game is, we had a rule with the White, not a rule, we had a standard in White Sox that you had one minute between innings to get off the field and on the field. So if the third out was made, the left fielder was going to lead off the inning. He had to be walking to home plate within a minute, minute and 10 seconds. We found out that we cut out 23 to 25 minutes of game time. So the games were faster. What does that mean? 
Well, the longer that you are on the field and no action, I guarantee you, you're going to make more errors because you're in a very sedative type of stance in the outfield or infield. And there's a rea- you're not going to be able to react fast enough. The, f- the more action you have, the faster your reactions are going to be. The longer you're standing there uh, without action, your reactions are going to slow down. You're going to make more errors. You're not going to make the great play that you would if you were an active type of player. So that's another reason you're making more errors. There's a lot of errors being made. I see a lot of errors being made on plays the old timers wouldn't make. Not that these guys are not capable. They are. But there's too much time between and too much thought could go into it. And then you have uh, the bullpen games. It's not uncommon to see six, seven, eight pitchers a game. And although you take the Braves as an example, it worked well. It got them to the World Series this year. But uh, again, it doesn't help with the time of the game. It doesn't help with the time of the game. And another thing is a lot of it has to do with the conditioning end of it. What do you, what, I, I get your opinion. You've been very close because you share. What's your feelings on the, uh, the injury factors of the game? And I'm, I, I have a, and I'll answer the question after I want to hear what you think the number of injuries in our game. I think, especially with pitchers. You're absolutely right. I, uh, I wonder if it is conditioning. I mean, I look at, uh, you know, some of the pregame warmups and that type of thing. And I don't know if they do enough stretching, you know, when you, you get these Achilles injuries and that type of thing. You, you, one other thing about pitchers. So you go back to the old days when these guys were pitching, you know, on three days rest, that's not unusual. And they would pitch. They, you had a lot of 20 game winners. You had guys pitching constantly. I wonder if those arms are just weak. <laughs> they aren't throwing enough instead of throwing too much. Very interesting. There was one year we had an excellent, outstanding conditioning program with the White Sox. We had one year that we did not have one hamstring pull. This is the minor leagues now. Uh, we had not one hamstring pull. We didn't have any quad pulls. And one of the things that we always emphasized was not only strength programs, but flexibility program and stretching programs. You see, the mistake that a lot of the, I see a lot of these guys, what they do and a lot of the conditioning, not all, uh, is they want to get stronger. They want to get bigger, stronger, stronger. Well, what happens, they are strong. These guys are strong. But they also have a lot of pulled muscles. They have a lot of tears. The problem is you get stronger, your muscles get bigger, but your fascia tissue and your attachments are not getting stronger. And that's where they start getting problems because there's more injuries now, more, a lot of rotator cuffs. Uh, I don't know how much money was on the disabled list this year. I remembered my last year in baseball, uh, we had 500 a million dollars worth of injuries on the disabled list throughout the major, not our team, but throughout the major leagues. But I think the conditioning now uh, is you don't want to build strength. This is the deal. Uh, And we had, and I have a background in that area. I have a background in motor learning. I have a master's almost into a doctorate in motor learning and biomechanics. So the question is you want to build not only strength, you want to build power. You want a, a power athlete. You want a guy uh, like you're, you're the kid you got. I, th- I think you, whoever your hitting instructor is down there with Atlanta, 
The guy did a heck of a job. You got a guy like Soler. He's a better hit. This guy's a good hitter now. Uh, the question is, you want to build power. What constitutes power? But the physics principle or formula is power equals uh, resistance times distance over time. How does that apply to baseball? Well, power equals strength times flexibility over speed. So you have to have three components. You got to have a strength factor. You got to be strong to play this game. But how much you're not developing a right guard or a left tackle. Uh, you got to have the flexibility. So you have good range of motion in your joints and you got to do it with speed. So each program should have those three elements. And I think sometimes like Tebow, I saw Tebow get in the weight room at down in, in, with the, with the Mets. He was the last guy to leave. He was pumping hundreds and hundreds of pounds. How about this watch called the guy for the Eagles, the Hertz, the quarterback, Yep. They say he's the strongest guy on the team. And I think that relates to his inaccurate passing because he's so strong and so muscle up, upper in his shoulders that he doesn't have the Brady looseness in his shoulder. Mm -hmm. If you think there's Brady and Hurts, and I think it applies to baseball, you got to maintain your, your flexibility uh, and you got to have strength, but you got to do it with speed. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we, we over, you know, they say, well, the old time guys, all the old timers, you know, they, they nailed the old timers, but the old timers, they had a strength program when they worked on the farm, milking cows and throwing hay. That was a strength program, but it was functional strength. It always had movements and, and the injuries were less. They were less. Mm -hmm. Very true. Kevin Seitzer, by the way, is the Braves hitting coach. I think he did an outstanding job. Quickly now, we're, we're running out of time here, but a, just some reactions on a couple of other uh, topics. Designated hitter all the way around. What do you think of that? You know, I always liked, you know, when you had the All-Star game, the American League, National League, that was competitive. You had the different type of ballparks. I'm not, you know, just my opinion. I, yeah, maybe I'm all the time or what, but I like all the different, stadiums i like uh all the variances american league uh you know with the dh and the national league now, you know these become good great topics you know are they going to be able to it goes back to can they adapt you go to, to fenway park uh can you hit the ball off the wall can you adapt see this game the big key to our game baseball is adaptability. Do you adapt to the ballparks? Do you adapt to the pitchers? Do you adapt defensively? What we're trying to do sometimes, I think we're trying to get a pill that makes everything equal. The stadium's all uniform, 335 down the line, 405. You know, that take that kind of is boring, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, like, you know, I, I think the differences and you have different people, you have different personalities. You can't lose track of that's what makes life interesting is that the adaptability, you go to a different show, you go to a concert, you know, you know, you go, you go to a ball game. It's all different elements of entertainment for the human being and a ball player. He adapts to ballpark. If everything's the same, well, then it becomes blah, becomes vanilla. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're losing the beauty of the game. All right, Shohei Otani, what do you think of him? Will we ever see another like him? Oh, my God, this guy's something else. Uh, I mean, 
he's just a tremendous, tremendous athlete. I still think the Guerrero should be the MVP. Uh, but uh, I mean, the other guy, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, you know, looseness. Uh, uh, I don't think so. he, he's just a treat to watch play and him and trout. And you start putting some, uh, you get your general manager of the Braves and you start having a, a guy like him and with, with, with the angels filling in those holes. Yep. <clears throat> you're, but he's a, I mean, he's just in, in, incredible fans come out to watch him come out and watch. You got two guys trout and him to come yeah. out to watch the play. It's pretty entertaining to watch, right? You're not yeah. going to leave in the ninth inning. If you know, a tiny and crowd are coming up. <laughs> you are exactly right. And it is a shame that they have not had the opportunity to play in the postseason. And let's hope that happens. Yes. Uh, Scott, Scott Boris said the Braves won because other teams were tanking. Is that a fair comment? Oh, well, Scott, you know, Scott's a very bright guy. He's, you know, uh, agent, you know, renowned agent. Uh, you know, he was a ball player. You know, he played double-A ball with the Cardinals organization. Mm -hmm. uh, they were tanking. You know, uh, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree. I think when you get on the field and you got these competitive athletes, uh, I don't care what the situation, they're playing the win. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not everyone's like the Philadelphia 76ers years back, right, where they were tanking. But let me ask you a question on this one. If, like, the Sixers were tanking, okay, if a ball player was known to tank a game or a bank, he'd be, he'd be thrown out of baseball, generally. Or he'd have, and so then a team tanks and no one does anything about it. What's yeah. wrong with that? But I, 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 don't, I don't agree with Scott on that one. And, and Scott's a very, very bright man. He really is smart. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't agree with him on, the, on this topic, uh, I mean, what teams were tanking? The pro problem is that there's not enough really good players. Why did the Braves win? They got better. See, this is how you always can tell good coaching. Good coaching, even if you don't have the talent, the players get better as the season gets on if they have good coaching. They may end up in the last place, but they're playing better ball now. They're making better plays. Well, the Braves got it. The general manager did a magnificent job of getting players. I mean, this is like, if he's not the executive of the year, I don't know, you know, then I think it is tanking or something. I think they better look into it. Yeah. But yeah. The thing is, was, uh, terrific. Oh my God. He did one heck of a job, this guy. But the fact is, uh, I, I don't buy it. I think guys are competitive. They want to win when that game starts. Uh, maybe the front office. I don't know what their thinking is, but uh, I, I, I don't, I don't agree with Scott on that one. I think, I think you're exactly right. I think it's not necessarily the players because they, when they're out on the floor or out on the field, they want to win. But it could yes. be the organization that says, well, let's not play those guys today or whatever and, you know, manipulate it that way. But uh, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're cheating the fan. You're cheating the game. And you know what? It's immoral. If they're mm -hmm. doing that, it's immoral. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'd love to talk more about some of the people you work for, such as Marge Schott. Uh, give us one comment about Marge Schott, who was the, the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. A unique and unusual, unique. Uh, uh, I've never worked with anybody like that in uh, my life. Uh, but the one thing I have to tell you, Jim Bowden, who was a general manager, uh, when he came down to it, uh, 
she would watch her pennies, boy, no one got a raise and no one got a Christmas present. Uh, but one time she gave a Christmas present, she went around to everyone in the office and she had this big bag and she's reaching into the bag and she's giving out Merry Christmas and, oh, and you have some children here. She's whipping out this like little miniature sample, like Snickers and Milky Ways. And one of my fr uh, guys worked in the office, assistant to Jim, bit into it and he spit it out. He looked at the thing, it was eight years old. She kept, you know, you give away these freebies. She was giving them out for Christmas gifts. But the one thing Jim could do when we were down and had a chance to win, he would go to her and say, look, we got a chance to win. And she would give him the money to get the player. But Marge, Marge is unique. Marge, Marge was just, you know, she loved her dogs. She loved uh, the zoo. She loved Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, but, you know, she was... Uh, uh, when her husband died, she took over the business. When the CEO, CFO of her husband's companies came to her and said, don't worry, you're, you're going to be in good shape financially. She says, well, I know that. She goes, I'm firing you. And she did. She did. She took over. She ran everything. I think you're reinforcing all our opinions of Marge Shot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and then the singing cowboy, the final comment, any, anything? Uh... Loved. I loved Gene Autry. Gene Autry would sit and talk. He loved, and we tried so hard to get him a championship. And we blew that, you remember that game against the Red Sox when Henderson hit that home run, hmm. we had a two game lead and he was a good guy. He really loved his people. He loved Jimmy Fergosi. He loved, he was uh, very patriotic. People don't know this. He was very patriotic and he was away in the service like a couple of years, you know. And when he was away, uh, Roy Rogers tried to get some of his contracts. Uh, but he told us, he's I got I got it back. He goes, I bought a lot of land in Orange County and, and Palm Springs. Uh, uh, but he took care of his people. You know, he he he, he wanted to win. As we got, we need Reggie, get Reggie, Fred Lynn, get Fred Lynn, never turn this down, get Gritch, get Gritch, get the sensei. And the biggest thing we always were, you know, we were unhappy with is that we didn't get him a championship before he passed away. Well, this was uh, terrific, Al, as always, uh, a clinic and a, uh, <laughs> a look at uh, history and many other things. We certainly appreciate you being here. And we got to do this again. This is this well, is just fabulous. It was my pleasure. And again, it gets me all hopped up. And I I, I just enjoy talking and your questions. And, uh, uh, you know, you're so into and knowing the, and answer and asking the great questions, the good questions. And I always enjoy I enjoy our relationship, but I enjoy being on your show. And I know the fans, they got to listen and because uh, they they're getting a lot of out of out of your yeah, out of, of what you developed. And I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks again, Al. Our guest has been Al Goldis. He's a super scout, a Hall of Fame scout. And uh, we certainly enjoyed having him with us. And as I said, we'll have to have him back again. Thanks for joining us. Find uh, Sports Across the Board on any of your favorite podcast locations. And uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Gary McKillops. You've been listening to Sports Across the Board. 
Join us next time as we take you behind the scenes on everything from the big events and the big issues to discoveries that are changing the world of sports. Sports Across the Board is an exclusive presentation of the McKillops Group. Our producer is Sean Powers. If you like what you've heard, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.